This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. I went on the internet and I was looking up articles such as why the controversy in tongues and are tongues for today and are they not for today. It's really amazing that most of the articles that you'll find are all based on experience. Uh, There's um, Morgan Freeman is doing some sort of show now, I didn't know about this, where he's going around to various religious factions, um, you know, the Jewish and then the Muslim and and then um, the Buddhist and such of that nature. He's trying to experience their worship time and then he's basically reporting on it. And so this last one he was at was at a Pentecostal church where, you know, tongues were present and all that kind of stuff. And, and he was talking about how blessed, and Morgan Freeman's not even a Christian. And the most, the most he can do is watch other people worship the Lord. And, oh, it's a wonderful thing. And you can tell they had this special prayer language. And I can see in their faces their rapture and their ecstasy and what they were saying. That's, this is great. Then I go and I look at um, some theologians and some people like John MacArthur take a really heavy hand about anything Holy Spirit-wise, which is unfortunate. And then uh, you go on the other side of the, the pendulum and, and, and tongues are a confirmation of either your salvation or tongues are a confirmation of your second filling or indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have to be baptized by the Holy Spirit subsequent to your salvation as evidenced by speaking in tongues. No, not exactly. But that doesn't mean everything they believe is wrong. And so what I want to do is, I, what I asked the Lord, I said, I want you to take these verses. I want you to, first of all, show me what the words mean. Show me how they're to be applied. Show me what Paul is saying here, especially in chapter 14, where it talks all about the tongues issue. And, and oh God, go about, tell me about the Acts chapter 2 where it first happened. And, and I want to know the truth. I want to know. And so if you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Verses 8 through 10, of course, we have the gifts that are given us. We've gone through these one at a time. For one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. We've talked about those. To another, discerning of spirits and what's involved in that and how that's connected with prophecy. To another, different kinds of tongues, the ones we're going to look at today. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. And as I shared with you in the groupings of these with heteros and alos, these last two are in a grouping together. Those that have the gift of tongues are similar to those people who are gifted having the interpretation of tongues, which just makes sense, does it not? So the question is, why the controversy? I mean, why does this split Christianity in half? And it really does. Why do you have people over here that say, no, God only speaks to us through his word? Mm, I mean, that's the Reformed conservative Baptist position. And the answer is, that's not really true. God speaks to us through his word, but he also speaks to us in many, many different ways. Sorry, you kind of missed it over there. Or you have this group over here that says, no, that you have to be baptized by the Holy Spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues as a sign. Well, 
Not necessarily. Now, yes, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and yes, filling of the Holy Spirit, but, but, but not really. And, and, they, and we entrench in these camps that no one yields, and I find out that most of it has to do with experience. I was in church, and I was really having a tough time, and all of a sudden, the, the pastor was talking about being, having laid hands on and receiving the Holy Spirit. So I went down the aisle and they laid hands on, on me. And, and the next thing I knew, I, I felt this euphoric kind of joy in the Lord, which is a wonderful thing, is it not? And all of a sudden, somebody told me to make sounds like a baby cooing, and I did. And the next thing I know, I had this wonderful prayer language. And every time I pray in tongues, I feel so close to God. I'm not arguing with that. That's a... That, I hope that when I pray, either in tongues or in English, I feel really close to God, and it's based on experience. Then you have someone who says, well, I tried that. I went down the church, and they laid hands on me, and they told me to, to, to kind of speak in time. Nothing happened. And so therefore, since it didn't happen with me, it can't be true. But since it did happen with this guy, it has to be true. It's all based on experience. We talk about wanting to live by faith, to, to line up with God's word, and yet we find that God's word has to be confirmed to us by experience before we even believe. And then we, we get in these theological camps and with, with these labels, charismatic, Pentecostal, Reformed, Baptist, Independent, Fundamental, whatever it is, and you've got all these camps, and therefore we adopt the, the teaching of those camps, and those camps as theological positions and labels be more, become more important than what God's word says. I, I found this in seminary. I, um, and everybody wants to know, are you reformed? Well, that all depends. On what? Well, on what you mean by reformed and whether the reformed tenets that you're talking about line up with scripture. If, if part of being reformed means it lines up with scripture, then yes, I'm reformed in those areas. I'm reformed when it comes to to salvation, for example, because Scripture clearly teach that before the foundation of the world, God chose me and him. True? But there's other tenets of being reformed, like their end-time eschatology, where you don't really take things literally, and the church and Israel are now meshed together as one in this replacement theology. That's crazy. Scripture doesn't teach that. I know, but if you're reformed, you have to believe all of it. No, I don't. I only have to believe the things that line up with Scripture. True? We all should be that way. But instead, we, we hunker down in our camps and we follow things with our hermeneutic to their logical conclusions, which may or may not be true. I want to know what God's word says. One of the other problems we have when it comes to any of these gifts, especially the gifts of tongues, is we don't do our due diligence. We accept what somebody else has told me. John MacArthur, who I respect, believes this way, so therefore... I'm going to believe like John MacArthur and never search it out myself. James Robertson, on the other hand, who was a Baptist and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and is now a charismatic, I really respect him. And so therefore, without researching it, I'm going to believe what he says. Or basically, I was raised in a Pentecostal church. I was raised in an independent, fundamental 1611 King James only church. And I adopt the mindset of the people that are there rather than doing my due diligence and search the scripture themselves. Because once we do, it becomes crystal clear God is not the author of confusion. But the major problem is our English. I mean, our English. I mean, even, and I know I've shared this with you ad nauseum, but the word love. 
You know, the word love has four different, really five different meanings in the New Testament. Five different words, three of which that were, are used more, most likely. There's agape love, which the New Testament writers basically coined because there was no Greek word to describe the kind of love they were talking about. There's eros love and erotic love between a man and a woman. There's filio love, friendship kind of love, Philadelphia, uh, um, city of brotherly love. But all it's translated is love. So it's left up to me, the reader of the English, to determine how I want to interpret that. And you end up with, you end up with errors. Because the fact is, our English is not near as comprehensive as the Greek, and it is so easy for each of us to take our Bibles and a computer or our cell phones and click a blue letter Bible word and have the Greek pulled up for us and see exactly what it means. But most of us don't even want to do that. Tongues... Versus tongue. King James adds a phrase in front of one of these Greek words and calls it an unknown tongue. Is that different than a tongue or a language or a dialect? And I don't know. I'm just relying on what I have in front of me. But it takes a little bit more study to be able to understand, to to get a little deeper than just our English language. And the other thing that's most important is context. When Paul writes this, what is the context? What is he trying to say? Who is he writing to? And and what were they struggling with? Or what was their question? Because all that is of vital importance in every area of our life, especially with a controversial subject like this. Let me give you an example. You ever heard of the love feast? That's in Scripture. A couple times in Scripture. As a matter of fact, Jude talks about the love feast, the agape feast. He says that in Jude 12, he says, and he's talking about people who have come into the church who are wrecking havoc, who are trying to destroy the church. These are perverted people who are trying to draw people away from them. And Jude spends a couple verses in his one-chapter book using the most painful and vile language to describe these people. They are spots, literally blemishes on your love feast. And I won't get into what spots means, but it's the most disgusting thing you can imagine. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, on and on and on and on and on. A love feast? An agape feast? What is that? I mean, the the church doesn't even... The church doesn't even do love feast anymore. You find a couple references into scripture about it, but what you're going to end up discovering is that the first and second century church wrote a lot about the love feast. And in the love feast, you had spiritual gifts that were present. Present people came and they washed each other's feet. They, they shared the Lord's Supper together. They gave of themselves. They prayed. And it was kind of like a sign or a mark of salvation. If you came to the love feast, then obviously you were saved and I could trust you and you could trust me. And It became the badge of Christianity back then, but it was so easily perverted. Satan worked himself in through people in the, in the love feast and all they had to do was say the right words and do the right things and cause immense division in the church that the church as a corporate body seemed to just do away with that. And we replaced it with our sacraments. We replaced it with just the Lord's Supper that we take together, but nothing of the intensity like a love feast. Go back to chapter 11. And if you look at verse 23 in your Bible, it's all about the Lord's Supper. 
For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night he went to was betrayed, took bread and on and on and on. But the context here is Paul is giving instructions for the Lord's Supper or the love feast because the people in Corinth were struggling with it because the people had come in and, and destroyed it and maligned it and had turned it into something different. Look at verse 17 of the same chapter. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that our divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you, which means those that aren't approved, we need to pick those people out in the group because they've, they've wormed their way in like Jude talked about. Therefore, verse 20, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat? It is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Exclamation point. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, you do, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Context. And then he starts telling us how we're supposed to have the Lord's Supper. Because there's a, it's a, like a love feast that's going on that had been destroyed because Satan had worked himself in and the church just kind of set that aside. Context, even in the Lord's Supper passage here, is of vital importance. Now let's talk about the gift of tongues. And let's turn back to Acts chapter 1 and let's see exactly what happened when... We first encounter this. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, it literally means when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. There's a, I can spend a lot of time explaining to you exactly why God waited this particular amount of time, 50 days after Passover, which is Pentecost. Jesus was on the earth for 40 days. They were in the upper room for 10 days. I mean, it was all prophetically designed. But the Holy Spirit is letting us know that when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled, it was fully come, they... The 120, maybe more, were in one accord in one place. Now, we don't know where that place is, but we do know they were in unity together and they were at one place. And we find out uh, in the next sentence that they were in a house. Now, we don't know where the house was. It may have been the upper room that they had the Last Supper, but there's a place big enough, maybe like this, where the group was together and they were waiting on what God promised would happen to them in Acts chapter 1. They were waiting for, the, for them to be baptized in one, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, with the Holy Spirit and become the witnesses God wanted them to, to, to be. They hadn't left. They were still there. Doesn't say that they were praying at this time. Doesn't say that they were having Bible study. As a matter of fact, it says that they were just sitting. I mean, it, it happened unexpectedly to them. And suddenly, literally the word means unexpectedly, there, there came a sound from heaven. First thing, there was a sound from heaven. And Luke, of course, hearing the accounts from others about this, they're describing the sound. It doesn't say that it was a mighty rushing wind, which had blown over lamps and trees and stuff of that nature. It sounded like a mighty rushing wind, as if or as of a rushing mighty wind. There was a sound like this hurricane, this mighty rushing wind, like a 747 engine right outside the room. And we find out in a few verses later that not only did they hear this sound in the room where they were, but the multitude that was outside was attracted initially because of the sound. Big sound. What in the world is going on here? 
And the sound filled the whole house where they were sitting. Not praying. They didn't expect this to happen. They were sitting. Then there appeared, not to everyone, but to them, those that are in the room. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. They weren't really fire. They looked like fire. It seemed like fire. And one sat upon each of them. It was almost like in their grouping, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is coming. There's this mighty rushing wind, which the crowd and multitude outside heard. Therefore, they came and gathered to see what was going on. Then there appeared to them. Now, it doesn't say that it appeared to most of them. I I almost feel like this was... This was the Holy Spirit letting the church know at this particular point in time they were 100% pure. Everybody who was there had a cloven tongue of fire come over their head, kind of like a sign. I see it. Scott sees it on me. I see it on Scott. We both see it on Phil. We're all bond together as one. A cloven tongue, as the King James says, or a divided tongue as a fire. The word for tongue here is glossa in the singular and glossi. In the plural, there appeared to them divided tongues. It's a simple one. Actually, it's a very complex Greek word. And you have the plural of that, glossi, which is what you have here. Glossa and glossi in the the singular and the plural as a fire. And one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. A tongue A fire came upon each of them. They were now filled with the Holy Spirit. First time on a permanent uh, nature. This was the promise that that Paul talked about in the book of Ephesians. That was a mystery in the Old Testament that's now revealed in the New Testament. And they begin to speak with other glossi. With the plural of this word we're going to define. Other tongues, not as they dictated, but as the Spirit gave them speech, declaration, or utterance. Holy Spirit gave them something to speak, and they spoke in other glossi. What's happening outside now? Now, there were many dwelling in Jerusalem. There were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. After all, this is Pentecost. And when this sound occurred, they heard the sound. They didn't see the fire, but they heard the sound. The multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in their own different word here. Dialectos, in their own language. They have a, they're, they're speaking glossi, and we're going to define these words in a minute, but they're hearing dialectos. Dialectos is what the word we get dialect from. It's a, it's a known language. It's, it's a language. They heard it in their own language. There's all these foreigners there, and the speaking is taking place, but it's being interpreted to them. There's no interpreter at this. God's interpreting it for them. They hear them speaking in their own language. And they were all amazed and marveled and said, looked at one another and said, look, are, are, are not all those who speak Galileans? We're not a Galilean, yet they're all Galileans. How is it that we hear each in our own language, not tongue, but dialectos language in which we were born, our native tongue? And then Luke tells us what those native tongues were. He lists them for us. So there's no confusion here. Parthians and Medes and Elamites. Those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. They're visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own, now we're back to Glossa, speaking in our own tongues. And what are they speaking? The wonderful works of God. 
They're telling about how great God it is, how marvelous God is. This mighty wind happens. These people are filled with the Holy Spirit. They see cloven tongues of fire or the piers of fire on each of them, kind of as like a confirmation that this is the beginning of the church. Outside is a huge crowd gathering. They're shocked because the disciples are coming out and they hear them speaking in a language they don't understand coming out of their mouth, but they hear it in their ears as something that's English. That's French. That's Swahili. That's, uh, that's German. That's my language. And I, what, what am I hearing? I'm hearing this group of men who seem confusing because they later on say, these guys got to be drunk because we can't understand what they're saying. But the fact is, they're hearing their own, in their own language, this evangelistic praise, gospel presentation of how good and great God is the wonderful works of God. Now, that's, that's, that's Acts chapter 2. But it brings us to the question, what do these words mean? Dialectos, glossa, glossi. Before we can figure out the theology behind the scripture, we have to figure out exactly what the words say. Now, this word has multiple different definitions. Let me give you the simple ones first. It means your physical tongue. When someone talks about they speak with other tongues or Jesus said that he reached out to the deaf man or the mute man and touched his tongue, same words being used. So it means your physical tongue. It also means speech or language. It means, for example, that it's um, um, somebody of a different kind of tongue or a different kind of speech or something of that nature. Specifically, a particular language or dialect as spoken by a particular people. We find that in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, the verse we just looked at. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues, in our own dialects, in our own languages that we recognize the wonderful works of God. And even in Acts, or 1 Corinthians chapter, by the way, go ahead and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, Paul begins his discourse on love by saying, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels tongues of men and angels. That's not just everybody. That's a tongue that men speak, and it's a language that angels speak. I don't know what language angels speak, but if Paul speaks that language, it's obviously a language that they speak, because when angels speak to men, they speak in a language that men understand. True? Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. All right, it means the physical tongue. It also means a it also means a, a known dialect. It is also used in Scripture for a people who speak a particular language, such as tribes, peoples, and tongues. We find this in the book of Revelation. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues. It's glossa or glossi in the plural. And uh, they're talking about the people standing for the throne. They're describing people who come from this nation, people who come from this tribe, people that speak this language, this known language. I'll show you one more example here in Revelation. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. It means a language that they speak. It means a group of people that all speak the same language. It means your physical tongue. And it also means something different. Now listen very carefully. The singular word glossa and the plural word glossi mean two totally different things. 
In the scripture, it's one thing to speak in other tongues, and it's another thing to speak in a tongue. First, the plural. When glossa is used in the plural, glossi, with a singular pronoun or subject, it refers to dialects which were not learned by the individual concerned. Such an individual was enabled instantly and temporarily by the Holy Spirit to speak in a language other than his native tongue. You go online and you'll find stuff like this happening all the time. I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't happen to the Clarks. They're out on some way away from the beaten path trying to minister to some people and they see somebody comes up, come up and they want to share the Christ with them and, and maybe they know English or they don't know the right dialect. They can't communicate. There's a, there's a barrier there like in Acts chapter 2 and they pray and they groan or whatever it is and God somehow takes their words and, and they find themselves speaking in a language that they don't know. The other people hearing that language, this happens all the time on the mission field. I mean, just, just look it up and they're hearing the wonderful works of God. We have no problem with that. What we have a problem with is some of the stuff we see in churches today. And we kind of pull it all together in a basket and throw it out the window, and that is wrong. It's not what the scriptures teach. Glossi, which is glossa in the plural, with a singular pronoun or subject, refers to a dialect that the individual who's speaking it doesn't know. It means if I'm sitting up here and I'm preaching, and there's a there's a bunch of people from Kenya that are here, and a bunch you, you guys are here, and I'm preaching the gospel, and the Kenyans can't even understand the message, or if I'm in Haiti and don't know how to speak Creole, then all of a sudden the, the Holy Spirit, in a temporary basis, allows me to speak a language that I've never spoken before, and the next thing you know is I'm speaking Creole that I don't know, but they know. And they hear the gospel message and hallelujah, we find out later on, tongues are a sign for non-believers because they're hearing the message in their own language supernaturally. That's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. This is also what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 where it gets a little more confusing in verse 6 and verse 18, especially when you see some of these verses that are quoted to, to kind of make us think something different than what's being saying. Paul refers to himself as speaking in glossi, which is languages or tongues. He languages he already knew or the ones he didn't know. And the fact is he was enabled to speak by the Holy Spirit with and in needed on a temporary basis. 1 Corinthians 14, 6. Now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, tongues, plural, glossi, what shall I profit you unless I speak either by revelation, knowledge, prophesying, or teaching? If I come to you and speak in Spanish, and I don't know Spanish, and you don't know Spanish, it's, re- it's pointless unless someone interprets or someone teaches or someone takes that foreign language and turns it into something that we all can understand. True? And here's the verse that we get really confused about. I thank my God I speak with tongues, glossi. More than you all, this gift of tongues is operating in me. He's not talking about some sort of ecstatic ecstasy prayer language here, and he does talk about that in this passage, but he's talking about something different. I thank my God that I'm able to do that. It makes sense because Paul's going to all these different places and all these meeting all these different people and dialects and all these different countries as a missionary. Don't you think that this happened to him a lot? What does it mean, especially in 
1 Corinthians chapter 2. Is it glossa or is it glossi? What does the gift mean? But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different, and in your Bibles, difference is italicized because our translators put that in there to help us understand that there's a multiplicity of tongues we're talking about here, different languages. It's not just one language. To another different Kinds and the word kind here is genos, and genos means a sort, a species, an offspring, or a family. In other words, it's a it's a knowable language. It's a little it's a separate segment of that. It's a separate species of that, but nevertheless, it's still a known language of tongues, glossi. It's a language or dialect used by a particular people, distinct from that of other nations and another the interpretation of the same glow sigh. So when it's talking about spiritual gifts and it's talking about the gifts of tongues, it is not talking about a private prayer language. It is talking about a gift that is given to be able to, by the unction of the Holy Spirit, to be able to speak a language other than your own for the benefit, really, of somebody else. In summary, this is the easy part. Confusing part comes next. In summary, speaking in tongues is a New Testament phenomena where a person speaks in a language that is unknown to him or had not been learned by the one speaking. And according to Paul, when tongues were spoken in the church, they were first to be interpreted by someone with the gift of interpretation, which turns that tongue into prophecy. Makes perfect sense. If someone is coming up here and I have a missionary friend of mine from Mexico, who doesn't speak a lick of English, and I want him to come and share with you what God is doing in his life. Unless you speak Spanish, you haven't gonna got a clue what he's saying, right? So what I would do is I would get an interpreter up here, and the interpreter would be able to speak English and Spanish, and as he preached, the interpreter would listen in the Spanish and interpret in the English so we would understand. It's the same thing with the gift of tongues. It makes perfect sense, does it not? Purpose of tongues, of course, the gift of tongues here is that others might be edified by the God-given message that we see. The gift of tongues is also a sign to unbelievers where they will hear the wonderful works of God as it talks about in Acts chapter 2 in their own language. And I've heard stories about this. Billy Graham even talks about this where they were in a church in New York City and they were singing songs. They were singing songs in English and praising God. And I don't even remember what nationality it was, but in New York City, a group of people were coming by and they heard the music and they heard the lyrics of the song that was being spoken to them in their language. Let's say that they were from Sweden and they didn't know a word of English, but they're hearing about the great wonders of God in their own dialect. And they walked into the door and the people are, are singing in English, but they're hearing it in their language. And even Billy Graham talked about that it's a missionary gift. It's an evangelistic gift. It's something that God uses to, to be able to get our message out to others without language barriers. That's a gift of tongues and a gift of the interpretation of tongues. But we're not done yet. Because what about this other stuff? All of us kind of agree with that. But, but what, about, what about this private prayer language? What about the millions 
literally tens, maybe hundreds of millions of Christians worldwide that sing and pray in tongues. Paul even talks about singing and praying in tongues in chapter 14. What about them? I mean, what's happened? Is that a gift of tongues? Is that something different? The times that you've gone to a charismatic church and you've sat and all of a sudden you have this multiplicity of people that are, are singing or praying in, in some sort of language that you've never heard before and, 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 and I don't know what's going on. Maybe one person interprets or another person does and, and there's joy on their face and they're ecstatic in the Lord and you ask them, what are you saying? And they say, I, I don't know what I'm saying because my spirit is praying and my mind is unfruitful. Gosh, I remember Paul saying something about that. I mean, what's happening here? Is that a gift? Is this something that I don't have that I want to have? Is, is that what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Well, the answer is no. But this is a phenomenon. This is something that happens. This is true. And so where well, you've got these two camps that say speaking in tongues is wrong and speaking in tongues is for everybody as long as it's evidenced by you know, baptism of the Holy Spirit, stuff of that nature. They're both wrong because the scripture teaches that both of these are real. Both of them are real. And the key is the word glosa in the singular. Glosai means a dialect that everybody knows, but glosa in the singular means something totally different. Many people don't take the time to look beyond the English to see exactly what these words mean and how they're interpreted. And if they did, you would find that this entire controversy literally goes away. Here's how it works. Whenever the word glossa, not glossi in the plural, but glossa is in the singular, where the singular subject or pronoun is used, King James always translated these words as unknown tongue because the the writers, the translators of the King James wanted us to understand there's a distinction between glossi, tongues, and glossa, tongue. And so tongue doesn't mean this tongue. Tongue means an unknown tongue. And you see this in the, the 1 Corinthians 14 passage. Every time you see that, it refers to the practice going on in the church of Corinth by speaking in an unknown tongue that was not known to anybody. It wasn't known to the person speaking, and it wasn't known to the people that were hearing. It was not an ordinarily spoken language. When you go to a charismatic church today, or if you have a friend that prays in tongues or speaks in tongues, and you're with them at a prayer time, and you're praying in English, and they start praying in tongues, and you don't know what they're saying, and they don't know what they're saying, that's glossa. That's not glossa, it's glossa. Glossa was regulated by Paul in the church. Because what was happening in the church of Corinth is you had a lot of people that were practicing glossa and there was no accountability. Just like with the love feast, just like with with people that were worming themselves in, all of a sudden you had some ecstatic utterances that were going on in a corporate setting. And Paul in chapter 14 was spending a lot of time talking about the difference between the gift of tongues versus this practice of glossa. And he never said the practice of glossa was wrong. He simply said it really doesn't have a place in a public setting. It's your private prayer life. It's your private prayer language. We have glossa in the singular and glossi in the plural. In the singular, it is an unknown tongue to everyone. The hearer, the one speaking, sometimes it's referred to as an ecstatic utterance. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's joy. It's, it's just my mind 
I, I, I'm overwhelmed to the point I don't even know how to pray. Oh, I'm so blessed that I don't even know how to pray. And words just bubble up out of my spirit. And Paul talks about the fact that when my spirit prays, my mind is unfruitful. But in a church setting, I will pray with my spirit and pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit and sing with my mind. See the difference? He doesn't say one is wrong and one is right. He just says in a church setting to keep confusion from happening or Satan to take this and use it against people that uh, what we need to do is, is regulate that. He never regulates the gift of tongues. Never says that only two or three should do that and they should have somebody interpret. He says they should be interpreted, but he never says only have so many people do this and not others. And the plural, glossi, is a known dialect or language, but unknown to the person speaking. Do you, do we got an understanding of the difference between these two? Got it? Okay. Here's what you need to do to understand all this. This is my Bible. Um, can't really see it that well. Sorry about that. This is, uh, this is 1 Corinthians 14, the passage here. And I don't know if you can see it, but what I always do, you need to mark your Bibles up, guys, um, because it's, there's nothing wrong with doing that. What I do is I'm going to go through. All right, this is tongue and tongues and tongue and tongue. And I've got tongue here and tongue over there. And I'm connecting all these together to see I've got tongue here and tongue here and tongues here. And I've got tongue over here. This is talking about tongues. Over here, we're talking about tongue. I want to know the difference. An easy way to do that is to basically just get your Bible out, start circling the, circle the words, and be able to chain them together so I can get a picture of what Paul is trying to say here. Got to have it in context. This teaching about tongue. He doesn't talk about tongue any other place. He talks about the church of Corinth. It doesn't appear that this was a widespread practice with the other churches, or if it was, they weren't having problems with it like the church of Corinth was having. The context is this. Paul is given instructions or regulating a practice in a Corinthian church that was literally out of hand or was potentially harmful. In doing so, he spoke of both the proper and improper use of tongues, not only the gift of tongues, glossi, but also the practice of praying and singing in corporate worship, glossa. And he does that all in chapter 13 and 14. But before we look at these, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. And I want to show you one of the things I'm going to ask the Lord about when I see. Actually, I say I am, but I'm probably not. Uh, Ask the Lord about when I see him. Chapter 14 or chapter 24 of Matthew is this incredible end time teaching of Jesus. Um, many will come in my name, nation will rise against nation, they will deliver you to tribulation. Um, when you see the abomination of desolation, I mean, it talks about all the end times, all the eschatology, it talks about everything. But here's what happens in verse number three of Matthew 24. He says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And what had happened here, they had gone by the temple. They had seen the temple. Jesus had, they'd marveled at the temple. Wow, what a great building that is. And Jesus said, do you not realize that one stone will be torn left upon another? And so they waited until they got him away privately. They're troubled with this because the temple, again, was the centerpiece of Jewish religion. And all these guys were Jews moving into the new faith. And so they said, we got some questions. They came to him privately saying, verse 3, tell us one when will these things be? Not one stone left upon another. 
Two, when will be the sign of your coming? Three, and of the end of the age. They asked three questions in two sentences. When will these things be? When will be the sign of your coming? And when will be the sign of the end of the age? And here's what Jesus didn't do. What Jesus didn't do is this. Okay, first question. Boom. Next question. Boom. Third question. Boom. Any other questions? Man, it'd be so easy. That'd have been so easy. Ah, first question, second question, third question. Now I know exactly. He didn't do that. He answered all those questions in all this red print. And he mixed them up. And he talked about one and talked about another and gave them kind of an out. And this is what's led to all this confusion about the end times because Jesus didn't exactly delineate the answer to this question and this question and this question. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is doing the exact same thing here. He's talking about questions that they had in the church and he's trying to, to deal with with problems that they were having and factions that they were having and my gift is more important than your gift and, and what about the whole Lord's Supper thing and you don't want to take the Lord's Supper in an, an unworthy manner and part of the unworthy manner is the way these spiritual gifts are being handled. So let me tell you what kind of gifts are proper in the church, the gifts of tongues, but let me tell you what kind of gifts that you need to kind of back off on because they're causing some issues here. I'm not saying that there's no place in the church, Paul says, for those gifts. I'm saying in a corporate setting, we need to regulate those and they need to be interpreted because this... Just the private prayer language is confusing everybody. And so what he does in his teaching is he goes through and answers all those questions. And the only way you're going to be able to know what he's talking about is by the use of glossa or glossi, or in the English, tongues or tongue. Make sense? All right, let's read this together. Let's, um, let's just begin with verse number seven of chapter 12. It says, the manifestation of the spirit is given for each for the profit of all. For one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of glossi, of tongues, to another the interpretation of glossi, tongues, known dialects. For the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ, even with all these gifts. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into the body, everyone, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. I love the imagery here where you're baptized, which means I'm immersed, submerged, overwhelmed in the spirit, but I'm also made to drink of the spirit. So I'm now filled on the inside with the spirit. I'm immersed in the spirit and full of the spirit. I am saturated with the spirit. Make sense? For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Of course not. And if the ear should say, because I, I am an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would the smelling? In other words, you're fighting about these spiritual gifts. You've got problems with the love feast. I'm trying to, to set these things in order. And just because one person has a more visible gift than another person, it doesn't mean that gift is more important or because your gift is not this gift that you're not to exercise that gift the way God has given it to you. Why? Verse 18. But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. Whatever gift or gifts you have, God gave you that gift. 
And if all were one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, are lost public. And who those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on those we bestow greater honor, and on our, our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body. That's the context here. That's what the argument's about. Schism in the body, that, but that all the members should have the same care for one another. In what way? And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are of the body of Christ and members individually. And as part of the body of Christ, he says, verse 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, that of miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. All of these gifts manifest. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have the gift of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Wow. So it's not for everybody. This gift is a gift. We're not talking about glossa. We're talking about glossi. We're not talking about a private prayer language. We're talking about the gift. Do all interpret? No, but earnestly desire the best gifts and I will show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the glossi of men and angels, and he goes through the gifts here, and have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, another gift, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, another gift. And though I have faith, another gift, that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow my goods to feed the poor, another gift, but not the gift listed here, to be, and give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Why? Because love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, does not provoke, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. The greatest gift, the greatest attribute is love, even greater than these gifts. And he says that by listing the gifts underneath that. But if prophecies, if there are prophecies, a gift, they will fail. If there are tongues, Glossi, this ability to speak in another dialect for an evangelistic reason, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, another gift, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy a gift in part. But when that which is perfect has come, who we talked about as being Christ, then that which is in part will be done away. There's no need for the gifts of the Spirit when Christ is in your midst. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when Christ comes, when the perfect comes, face to face. Now I know in part, but then when Christ comes, the perfect comes, I shall know just as I am known. Now there abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. We're in context now. Okay, we follow now to we talked about we talked about 
taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. We talked about schisms. We talked about gifts. We've spent a lot of time talking about don't say my gift's better than your gift or you can't be involved in this and stuff of that nature. Then we talk about love that overrides everything. And now we're going to specifically deal with an area they were struggling with was the difference between glossa and glossi in a church setting. Only in a church setting. Verse chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love that we just talked about and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you prophesy. We talked about this two weeks ago. The most important of these verbal gifts, communicable gifts, is that you prophesy. Because now I'm taking the message of God, whether it's spoken in a tongue, which an interpreter turns into prophecy, or whether God has given me a prophecy or given you a prophecy, and I'm turning it into something that is beneficial for somebody else in a language they can understand. Makes perfect sense, does it not? I want the gift of being able to speak in Swahili. Okay, Steve, that's great, but for the congregation's sake, I think it'd be better if you had somebody interpret that or that you prophesied. Why? So we can know what's going on. If I just speak in Swahili to myself, I'm edified, but they're not. In a church setting, it's better that, that, I, uh, that they're edified by the message rather than just me. Paul, I would rather speak five words in English than 10,000 words in Swahili or your private prayer language in a church setting. It's the difference between glossi and glossa. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Why? For he who speaks in a tongue, singular, in an ecstatic utterance, in, in what other people would say is gibberish, which something that means something only to you. When someone speaks like that, he does not speak to men, but to God. Now, this is not tongues, because it was tongues, it would be different. I'd be hearing a message and speaking in a known language. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. It doesn't say speaking in tongue. A tongue is wrong. It is a true phenomenon. I'm speaking in a tongue. My spirit prays. My mind is unfruitful. I don't even know what I'm praying. But in a church setting, that gives absolutely no benefit to anybody. Paul's concerned about the corporate body unless that tongue is interpreted. Make sense? Pursue love, but desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. You go to a charismatic church. You have a someone who speaks in a tongue, you ask them, they're excited about what they've done, it's ministered to them greatly, but you're clueless about what happened. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So how do we take a tongue and turn it into prophecy? Verse 4, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Now, that's, that's not true if this word was tongues. Because if I'm speaking in tongues, I'm speaking in a language that you know, I'm not only edifying me, but I'm also edifying you who know that language and can understand the message. True? It's not glossi, it's glossa. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. And by the way, that's not a bad thing. It's okay to speak in ta- tongue and edify yourself, according to the, pa- the passage here. Edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. And now Paul says, this is what we need to do in the church. No longer about the individual, it's about the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, glossi, 
like I do, that you spoke in these languages that other people can hear for the edification of the church, but even more so than speaking in tongues that you prophesied. For he who prophesied is greater than he who speaks with tongues, with an S, unless he interprets that the church may receive edification. A man speaks with a tongue, his private prayer language, glossa, that's okay, you know, but that doesn't really edify the church at all. We're going to edify the church, which is Paul's concern here. I I wish that you spoke in tongues, but if you've got to speak in tongues, someone has to interpret because prophesying is better than speaking in tongues because we all need to hear the message. But now, brethren, and he goes to lay a little logical argument here. If I come to you speaking with tongues, plural, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching, unless I interpret the message? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sound, how will you know what's piped or played? For if a trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue, now this tongue here means the physical tongue, by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking in the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages, dialectos in the world, and none of them without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks to me will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, Corinthians, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church, not the individual, for the church that you seek to excel. Okay. If I'm going to edify the church, then Paul's going to go back now and talk about the practice that was going on with Corinth where the church was not being edified because people were speaking in glossa. Um, glossi. He says, therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue, in an unknown language, in your private prayer language, in gibberish to everybody else, pray that he may interpret. If you're going to speak like that in a church, somebody has to interpret to turn into prophecy. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays and my understanding is unfruitful. So what is the conclusion if I do that? Well, I, Paul says, will pray with the spirit and I will also pray with the understanding, which means Paul speaking in tongues here but he's also speaking in a language that they would understand. I will sing in the spirit. And I'd love to hear that, wouldn't you? But I will also sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will the one who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at the giving of thanks since you do not understand what you say? If I I blessed in Swahili, then Scott who speaks Swahili could say amen. But if I'm If I'm blessing in a tongue, which nobody knows, something that sounds like gibberish or or a private prayer language, then there's nobody in there that will know when I'm done, what I'm saying. So Paul's saying in a church setting, prophesy or speak in tongue, the gift of tongues, but on on your personal prayer language, which he's dealing with here, tone that back. For indeed, verse 17, for indeed, for you indeed give thanks well, but the others not edified. I thank God that I speak not tongue here, but in tongues, which we want to have happen in the church more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. In this very sentence, we have tongues and tongue. 
in a church setting, he's saying, I, I, I don't necessarily would rather speak 10,000 words in a known dialect that somebody can interpret for the edification of everybody. He's saying that I, I thank God that I do speak like that more than the rest of you. But in a church setting, I don't want to speak my private prayer language because it edifies nobody. I'd rather give you five words of English than we sit over here for three hours and sing and pray in the spirit because that doesn't benefit anybody but me. But if I'm giving you an understandable teaching, then I can teach and we can grow and the body's edified. Understand the difference? And it all has to do with plural and singular of that word. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. Why? For in the law it is written from Isaiah, with men of other tongues, yes, these are known dialects, and other lips, I will speak to these people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues... The known dialects are a sign not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. Why? Well, because they're hearing the gospel in their own language. They're hearing the manifest wisdom of God in their own language. and They're they're convicted of their sins. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and they all speak in a language nobody understands, and he's talking about tongues with an S here, Golsai, Then there may come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers. Will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convicted by all. He is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed through this prophetic message. And so falling down in his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Okay, Paul, you've explained to us how prophecy is best and that in a church setting, tongues are okay. But even in a church setting, I would rather speak words of understanding or or tongues that can be interpreted than, than, than this. But when it comes to a tongue, my private prayer language, there's really no point in that at all. But instead of Paul saying, I'm going to shut it all down, he regulates it. Here's what we need to do. If some of you at the church of Corinth, and he never dealt with this in any other church, if some of you in the church of Corinth want to continue doing this in your setting, then here's how it needs to be regulated. Because this ecstatic, just for you, private prayer language that goes on for who knows how long isn't benefiting anybody but you, and we have to be about others. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to regulate it, and we're not going to allow you to do that unless somebody can interpret and turn it into the highest gift. Verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, each of you has a psalm, each of you has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation? By the way, this is not laying out how church should be. In the context here, he's chastising them. How is it, guys, that when you all come together, one person says this, one person says that, one person says this, one person says this, everybody's driving credit for themselves. This person gives a prophecy, and this one wants even a better one than that one, and this one does a tongue, and this one sings in the Spirit, and the fact is this person says that one's not needed, and this person doesn't feel as good as that person. We've already dealt with those issues. When it all comes together and, uh, and all this happens, you guys are all concerned about yourself. Verse 26, let all things be done for edification. We're not saying this is the layout of the church. That's what they were doing. So what do we do about tongue? If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn and let one interpret. This one speaks in a tongue. This one speaks in a tongue. This one speaks in a tongue. No more. Any more of that is obviously of the flesh. 
and someone needs to interpret. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or most three, each in turn, not chaos, but each in turn, and let one interpret. And if there is no interpreter, then let him keep silent, not at home, but in church. Let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Because we're not trying to cause chaos in a worship service. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge the people with discerning of spirits. And if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let him first keep silent. For you all can prophesy one by one and all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches and all the saints. Get the point here, what he's saying? Why, I just have to give this prophecy. Well, no, someone else has already done that. You just need to, to tighten it up. You need to just hold on. God is not the author of confusion. Everything needs to be done in order. And, and what Paul is doing is trying to regulate a chaotic situation that was going on at the church of Corinth that goes on in many churches today where there's just, just a mass chaos of people praying in their private prayer language just for them. And Paul says in a church setting, that doesn't work. I'm not edified. If Debbie's praying in her prayer language and Tim is praying in his prayer language, he's not edified by her and she's not edified by him. And they're a married couple. The fact is it can only happen if Debbie prays in her prayer language and somebody needs to interpret. And all of a sudden we're all edified by that. If there's no interpretation, there's no private prayer language. Make sense? We're not talking about the gift of tongues, which is a known dialect for the benefit of others. We're talking about the private prayer language. Here's the two camps. This person says, none of those gifts are biblical. No, that's, that's not true. Yeah, but they abuse those gifts in a charismatic church, but that doesn't mean they're not biblical. The fact is, Paul never said in here, Paul never said in here, one is proper, one is not. He basically just said how we're supposed to handle this for the love and benefit of each other. Make sense? Last couple of verses here. Just look at verse, uh, um, verse 39. He says, Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Well, you know, if it's going to cause that much confusion, Paul, we're just going to banish it all. No, it's a spiritual gift. Let the spiritual gift be manifest in the church, but it's better if that gift is moved into prophecy so, so uh, it can be interpreted. But the bottom line is, verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Make sense? I mean, let me see if I can sum this up for you. And... Three divisions seems like in Scripture the use of tongues, or tongue of glossa. There's first, that is a language or a known dialect of a people group that is to be interpreted and defines the proper use in a Christian congregation. This is the tongue that's supposed to be used. This tongue is a sign for unbelievers, but prophecy or the interpretation of this tongue is a sign for believers. Two, there's a tongue appears in the context of evangelism, like in Acts chapter 2, where they're presenting the gospel and whose language they don't know, like a missionary, and so they're communicating the gospel and they're hearing it in their own dialect. You will find, if you'll do some research, that this is done a lot on the foreign mission field. God moves supernaturally in incredible ways with the gift of tongues. Both of these are what 1 Corinthians calls the gift of tongues. Not to be thrown out. Not to be said this is an error. 
But there's also the use that we just looked at of glossi, or glossa, which is a private prayer language that is also to be interpreted. It is for the edification of the one speaking as they speak to God and not to man. It is their spirit that prays, mysteries unto God. But Paul says in a church setting, we're going to regulate this. I get the impression he would rather not have it at all because he never talks about it in any other congregation he sends letters to. But he regulates this and says, if this is going to happen, continue to happen in your church, then we need to regulate this so it doesn't get out of hand because it doesn't edify anybody but the person praying. But if you're going to do that, then someone has to interpret if, to edify everybody. If nobody interprets, then we're done. Make sense? And it all boils down to this. Last slide. Now, I know I went this, through this pretty quick, and you're probably going to have a lot of questions, and Tuesday I'll answer all those questions that I can, tell you my personal experience and, and what I've seen and what I haven't seen and stuff of that nature. But, but the fact is, uh, if you have the gift of tongues... It is a, it's pretty much a missionary gift. It's a gift where God will temporarily give you um, the words to speak in a language that you don't know for the benefit of somebody else who will hear the gospel message or they will, somebody will interpret that in a way that other people are, are moved and other people are changed. If you have a private prayer language, that's fantastic. But Paul says in a church setting, it needs to be a private prayer language. And you need to be quiet unless someone's going to interpret. Uh, and what happens, our experience has been that I know yours has two in church. You've got a couple of people start praying and, you know, prayer language over here. And these people feel kind of slighted over here. So they pray even longer. And this plays even longer. And there's a one-upmanship. And you got all this stuff going on. And, well, I ain't got that kind of language. Well, you don't have what we have. And it causes chaos and division. And that's what Paul's saying in these three chapters. Not supposed to do that. It doesn't edify anybody. What edifies somebody is prophecy, proclaiming the, the glories of God. So in those two theological camps, you know what the truth is? dead center in the middle. That both of them are wrong on their extremes. And both of them are right in some of the areas that they affirm. But this is what the scripture teaches. And the way to understand that is just take a little time and dig a little deeper into just the difference in this whole situation between the singular and the plural use of one word that you can do in five minutes on Blue Letter Bible on the internet. And it changes everything. Amen? Amen? Let me pray.